So if someone were to ask you, so what's the big idea behind your faith? And just kind of keep it simple for me. Give it to me in like a sentence or two. My guess is that would not be the easiest thing to respond to. Most of us, I think, could give kind of a longish reply. Maybe we'd uh, ramble a little bit. I know I would and talk about our experience in being a Christian, what that's meant to us. But what if you had to sum it up in just one or two sentences? What if that's all you had to work with? What if, you know, what are the absolute essentials of Christianity? What would you talk about? We're thinking about not an easy task. Jesus was asked those exact same kinds of questions during his ministry. Uh, Jesus, how do you sum up the Jewish faith? That's kind of what we're going to deal with today in our passage in Mark. There's, that's the exact exchange that happens between Jesus and this unnamed scribe in Mark 12, 28 to 34. You can get ahead of me and flip there in your Bibles. Prior to this in Mark 11, Jesus has entered Jerusalem. So now he is fully, uh, how would I say it? He's very close to the cross. So he's done the triumphal entry. The cross is very near. Uh, he's already had some very heated exchanges with the Jewish leaders, and he's already cleansed the temple. So his purposes and identity have become all the more clear. And then we get to our chapter, which is Mark 12, and the pressure is rising. It's like a pressure cooker. And Jesus continues to debate the Jewish religious establishment. And they've debated, like, I mean, get a load of these. These are the things you're not supposed to talk about. Taxes, money, stewardship, resurrection, marriage. I mean, what are the two taboo topics you're not supposed to talk about? Money and religion, huh? That went out the window. And it's fascinating in a way to kind of watch how this plays out. It's like this verbal theological sparring. In these debates, every single person knows their Old Testament. I mean, left, right, backwards, forwards. They know their scripture. The scribes know it. The Pharisees know it. The Sadducees know it. The Herodians know it. They know their scripture. And obviously Jesus does. They know their scripture. This serves to remind us, I think, up front, that knowledge of God doesn't save anyone. You can, you know, so who knows the most about God? Or who knows the most about the Bible? You can know an awful lot about God, but not know God at all. So I think it's a question as we read through these exchanges prior and after this of yieldedness. And we see that over and over again with Jesus and the religious leaders. Yieldedness. Has the word of God, has it, has it made it in here? I love that so many of our readings today mentioned the heart. God, I want your precepts to live in my heart. I want those to be precious to me in my heart. And that's kind of the question Jesus is posing again and again. Has the word of God, has it penetrated you to your core? Have God's commands, have they been ingested to the point of, of changing you? Not just being up here, but have they made that trip down? I has this revelation of God, the scriptures in this case, changed them. Obviously, it's a question for us too. So it's not an arm's length. This is, I think, a very prescient question for us, too. So here we go. Uh, what do we know about this unnamed scribe in our gospel passage? I want to take a little bit of a closer look at him. He's unnamed, so we don't know a lot about him. But we do know a bit about the scribal culture and that world he comes from. So I want to give us a piece of what that means. So we kind of know where he's coming from and who Jesus is dealing with and what this conversation looks like. So to be a scribe, I mean, basically, it means you, you study the Torah, all right? Uh, you transcribe the scriptures. So really serious. We wouldn't have uh, a Jewish New Old Testament without those scribes. So that was their job. They took it very seriously. And they wrote commentaries on the law, too. So they were scholars, teachers of the law. Um, they could even write legal documents like 
in the case of divorce and things like that. They were sought out for those sort of things. One of the things they did, which is this is where it gets a little funky and interesting, is they parse out what are the greater commandments and what are the lesser commandments. So all of them had to be obeyed, so they all were authoritative, but the rabbis spoke of some commandments. If you look back in history, it's heavy, some are heavy, and some are light. And most scribes agreed that some commandments were more important than others, but there's a debate as to which ones, okay? Which ones are the most important? Now, get a load of this. There are 613 individual commandments or statutes in the Law of Moses in the Torah. Folks, that's a lot to keep track of. That's a lot to remember. So, seen in a positive light, we can understand why that human desire to kind of suss out the law and, and prioritize it. Um, with 600 plus commandments to remember, uh, you'd want some sort of, give me, the, give me the big idea. Like, what's the bottom line? What's the single like, unifying principle to sum it up? So I understand that, right? There's a positive light to that. There's a downside too. Um, this tended to devolve into a religious list of uh, do's and don'ts, right? Piety. Or what also happened was human commentary on God's word tended to kind of get commingled with the scriptures, um, which it's kind of like gospel and syndrome, I would say. Can we tell the difference between what God said and our commentary on it? So sometimes those things got kind of conflated and commingled. So these are the issues that, that typified uh, Jesus's, the religion of Jesus's day. And the scribal culture was kind of separated from the everyday life of normal or ordinary people. Maybe it's similar to, in our day and age, uh, how we feel about maybe the academy or the political landscape. That's just the tribal culture, excuse me, the scribal, work tongue, the scribal culture. So that's kind of where this guy's coming from. So he steps into the middle of the phrase. There's, there's, there's this heated argument going on, uh, and he steps into it. Jesus is teaching in the temple at this point in time, and he's being asked questions. And really more, he's being interrogated. It's very heated and charged by the Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians. So what you need to see here is that these are all the segments of ancient Jewish leadership, and they're set against Jesus. They've united against him. These are not groups that normally uh, hang together. They're not simpatico, but they're sort of taking turns at Jesus. Like one group has a go at Jesus, and another group has a go at Jesus. But they don't normally hang together at all. The Pharisees and Herodians, they had almost nothing to do with each other politically, religiously. But what I want you to hear in this is that despite their differences, they're unifying to move against Jesus and to discredit him. So we pick up our story. The single scribe uh, is verse 28. He's been watching this. He's been observing this, okay? Very carefully listening to the debate. He's evaluating and processing how Jesus is answering some very difficult questions that are just traps, really. And he's seen how he's navigated this theological minefield. And he's concluded that Jesus has answered them well. And what that means is that he's given uh, wholesome answers. He's given satisfying answers. He's been giving enlightening answers. So he's answered well. That's what he means. Now, this scribe seems to be in the minority here because he's going to ask Jesus a, a real question. He's not trying to trap Jesus. By all appearances, it seems he really wants to know. He really wants an answer to his question. This isn't a trap. So he enters the scrum and he asks a doozy of all the commandments. And remember, that's 600 plus. Teacher, which is the most important? The famous uh, greatest commandment passage. So finally, we've got a relevant question. 
There's nothing arcane here. This isn't about how many angels can dance on the head of a, head of a pen. Nothing like that. Now, very important question. Of all the commandments, which is the most important? This question has been asked and answered before. So let me tell you what's been said before. Uh, Simon the Just, about a couple hundred years before Jesus, here's how he answered it. The world rests on three things. The law, sacrificial worship, and expression of love. Okay? One of Jesus's sort of contemporaries, Hillel, who was around when Jesus was up till boyhood through 10, here's how Hillel answered it. What you yourself hate, do not do to your neighbor. That's the whole law. The rest is commentary, so go and learn it. Okay? Seeing some common themes here. Uh, Rabbi Akiba, who's a little bit after Jesus, late first century, regarded love of neighbor as the greatest commandment in the law. So there we go. But that's how they answered it. They've been asked and answered before by the rabbis. How's Jesus going to deal with this? Let's take a peek. Well, first, I love it because he doesn't give just one answer. He gives a two-part answer. <laughs> uh, and the first part comes from our Deuteronomy reading that you heard. And he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5. That's the Old Testament from today. Then he also quotes Leviticus 19:18. So let's deal with each part as we go. Part 1. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your might, it says. Jesus is quoting the first lines of the Shema. What the heck is the Shema? Shema is the Hebrew for the word hear. It's that first line in Deuteronomy 6, 4. And Jewish person would say Shema. Oh, they know that entire passage. In saying that the Lord your God is one, the Shema is affirming that there's only one true God. There's all these other pagan gods out there in the ancient Near East, but there's only one true God. This isn't anti-Trinitarian. It's not about that. It's really stubbornly monotheistic. So the Lord is singular. He's the one and only. There's no one like him. There's no one like our God. So the Shema says that. It also commends us to love this unique one, no, one God that no one is like, to love him with everything that we have, every ounce of our being. So that's what it means by mind and heart and soul and strength and, and all that. It's a really holistic summation of what makes a person a person, right? It's a picture of offering just everything you have to God. Everything, everything. And if you look back, I mean, even 2nd century B.C., if you're a Jew, you would recite that Shema in the morning and you recite it in the evening. You would teach it to your children, similar to how we would teach our children the Lord's Prayer. It was just in them. I mean, their lives were penetrated by and imbued with this sense of God. The Shema sums that up. It's a picture of just the all-encompassing nature of giving lives to God. So Jesus' first part. The Lord your God is one, loving with everything you have. Okay, that's the first part of his answer. Second part, and that's from Deuteronomy. Second part, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is riffing off of Leviticus 19.18. I want to read this to you. You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people. This will become relevant later. But you shall love the neighbor as yourself. I'm the Lord. Okay. Let's observe what Jesus is doing here. He's basically summarizing the two main parts of the Decalogue of the, of the Ten Commandments. So put simply, love God, love your neighbor. So the common theme, love God, love your neighbor. Common thing there is love, is love. Here's what J.C. Ryle has to say about it. We're not merely to obey the one, God, 
or abstain from harming the other neighbor, in both cases, we are to give far more than this. We are to give love, the strongest of all affections and the most comprehensive. A rule like this includes everything. Nothing will be intentionally lacking where there is love. Well said. I always count on JC to bring a good word. So in both answers, Jesus calls us to love. Biblical love. Now, this is what I love about our, <laughs> pun intended, I guess. Uh, this is what I love about our faith. Um, love isn't some sort of inner, inner pondered reality. Love is not a, like a, a lofty philosophical ideal. Biblical love is, is enacted. It's something that acts. We know this because God demonstrates his love to us. He shows us this. So think of this. So God created us out of love. We know this. God rescued us out of love, right? Jesus leaves the throne room of heaven to come to our aid. After God had already sought out his people through the patriarchs, through the law, through the prophets, etc., etc., right? Jesus died for us out of love. And God the Father sacrifices what is most precious to him out of love. Love. So God, and if that isn't enough, which it is, but let me keep going here. God continues to pursue us and renew us out of his love. We call that sanctification, right? He continues to pursue us. And in fact, we find in Colossians that God sustains his creation out of love. He keeps this thing going. He just created. He keeps it rolling. So God shows he loves us by his actions. I mean, parents, or I should say, we've all been children too. What sense does it make if your parent doesn't act like they love you? What sense does that make to a child? If you say, it's all lip service. Hey, I love you, but they're never shown that. They're never, that's never demonstrated to them. Doesn't make any sense. It's massive cognitive dissonance. So love acts. That's what I want you to see here. And Jesus is saying here to love God and to love your neighbor, right? That's his thing. God knows if you love him and your neighbor, if you act upon both of those things. So Jesus is showing us a relationship here. Um, We can't break these commands apart unnaturally. There's a God-ordained relationship between them that he's putting there. I mean, the Decalogue, Decalogue shows us that relationship. Those first few commands, they're about love of God. Shows us where love starts, but it doesn't stop there. Having loved God, our call is then to move towards our neighbor, to act towards our neighbor. That's the second part of the Decalogue. So there's a relationship in those commandments. There's an inseparability. Love of God, Jesus would have us know, should lead to love of neighbor. And I think the tie that binds those things together is grace. Grace is what binds those two commands together. Remember when you were slaves in, in, in Egypt, Israel, right? Remember that. Remember that. Because then when the foreigner comes to you, you will treat them with love and with kindness. Remember when you were an enemy of God. Remember how God rescued you out of love and extended to others as God has loved you. That's where love of neighbor comes from, from grace. I'm, uh, boy, I tell you what, the last, I don't even know when to start the clock, but the last, at least the last year, I'm just astounded at the arguments that I watch kind of play out, especially in sort of the American evangelical sector uh, around loving your neighbor, as if loving your neighbor or seeking what's good for them or making uh, loving your enemies as if that would make you like a socialist or a theological liberal or a progressive or whatever. I mean, it's just 
biblical Christianity. So thus far, Jesus has given a great answer, but it's pretty orthodox. And it's, um, I wouldn't say it's any, there's nothing tremendously uh, unique about it here. It is wonderful. If there's anything that he's done up to this point is he's, he's married those two commands together, those two orthodox commands, and he showed the relationship between them. How love of God and love of neighbor are related. So that may be something that's somewhat unique. But there's another nuance, I think, to what Jesus is saying here that's worth pondering. What we're going to do is we're going to have to leapfrog to Luke 10. That's the account of the great commandment. So similar kind of thing. What's the greatest commandment? Jesus lays it down, similar to here. But and then someone at the end says, well, okay, who's my neighbor? Okay. What does Jesus respond with? Anybody remember? He doesn't give him an answer. He gives him a story. He gives him a parable. You know what story he tells him? The Good Samaritan. That's right. Somebody says, who's my neighbor? Jesus talks about the Good Samaritan. And this is where things get really interesting. So according to Leviticus 19.18, remember that second part of Jesus' answer? Remember that? A neighbor was the, and I'm going to quote it, the son of your own people. But in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus broadens that out and basically includes anybody. I mean, it's a massive paradigm shift. So for us, it would be like having this understanding of, hey, your neighbor's just people in church. And Jesus would come and say, no, it's not that. It's anybody but you. Uh, it's not just the church. It's everywhere. It is a huge paradigm shift. I mean, think of this. Even a Samaritan, even somebody outside your group, outside your people group, even somebody outside your comfort zone, outside your religion. Wait, outsiders are our neighbor too? And Jesus says, Absolutely. We think, ah, big deal. So scandalous. Who's my neighbor? The way Jesus answers it in that parable, it's not just your people, not just church folk, right? It's those who've been passed over or overlooked or ignored. It's the outliers, the outsiders, the rejects. Who's my neighbor? Jesus basically says, anybody but you. (laughs) Anybody besides you. So it's really challenging. It's shocking. But in Jesus' answer, He's telling us that this wholehearted love of the Lord leads directly to actively seeking my neighbor's good, right? Loving them, right? Maybe advocating for them, seeking their welfare, which goes way beyond just, I'm trying not to harm you, right? Biblical love is lived out. Love acts. So Jesus laid this out. That's a lot. How does the scribe respond to Jesus? Let's get to their final exchange. This is uh, 32 to 34. He says, well said, teacher. Uh, The scribe replies, I always think of this. Does Jesus ever have trouble keeping a straight face? He's like, oh, that was a good answer. You did well there. And I'm thinking, I just wonder if he's going to, yeah, I'm the God of the universe. Thanks for that. Appreciate it. (laughs) No sign of that. That's what I would do if I were Jesus, but uh, there's no sign of that with him. Well said, teacher. Right on, spot on. The scribe replied, you're right in saying that God is one and there's no other but him. To love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbors yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Ah, that part I think is worth commenting on. That final comment, that scribe, man, he puts his finger on something Jesus has been hammering away at. And it's just... It's hypocrisy. Jesus is saying you can't go through the motions with your sacrifices. And what that means is outward religious duties. But opt out of love. So you can't do all the right stuff 
but not have a changed heart. Like, he, I know the difference, Jesus would say. The blood of goats and bulls, uh, they're going to do you no good. So the scribe has a great observation here. I mean, listen to Hosea 6, 6. For I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. I desire the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. That's Hosea. Other prophets like Amos and Isaiah repeated, repeatedly said similar things and they rebuked Israel and they used harsh language. I hate your offerings, the Lord would say. Why? The Lord hated those things and rejected those things because the people weren't acting justly. They weren't acting righteously. There was neither love of God nor love of neighbor. So God doesn't want an unchanged heart that checks off all the boxes. Yep, did this, did this, did this, did this. Yep, but it's devoid of love. So he wants our actions to be motivated and empowered by love, right? And when Jesus saw that he, the scribe, answered wisely, which is far more, he was like, okay, <laughs> that, that feels far more right to me. He says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You're not far. You're not far from the kingdom of God. And then others didn't dare to ask him another question, which I don't quite know what that's about, but I want to focus on you're not far from the kingdom of God. Many of these encounters, if you'll notice, I mean, we've been in the Gospels for mm, probably the last four sermons or more. A lot of the encounters with Jesus in this way, there's sort of a decision point, but you don't know how it ends fully. You don't know how it ends. So I wouldn't say it's a cliffhanger, but it does kind of end with an ellipse, dot, dot, dot. You don't know what's going to happen. Uh, here's the sense of it. Will this scribe's admiration and appreciation, whatever evaluation of Jesus' answer, is it going to be enough that he'll leave that life behind and follow Jesus? We don't know. Uh, I do know that Mark doesn't tend to remain silent when someone does choose to follow Jesus. Bartimaeus follows Jesus, and guess what? We hear about it, right? The rich young ruler does not follow Jesus, and we hear about it. So it appears that even though this scribe is not far from the kingdom of God, to use Jesus' phrase, being not far from the kingdom of God and being in the kingdom of God are two very different things. At the very least, it leaves us with this uncomfortable notion of like, oh man, not all follow Jesus, but they get awful close. But evidently, close isn't, they just ain't going to cut it. Every time, every time, and I mean every time. Every time I uh, examine one of these great commandment passages, it's just so hardcore. It's so challenging to live out. And you'll notice, I mean, this is law, but Jesus does nothing to undo it. He does not invalidate it. It's still authoritative, right? Love God, love your neighbor. This is where... I, Here's, here's one of the things that, that, I, that I muse on, because I grew up in the American evangelical church. I mean, I grew up that way. And even though I wouldn't say, hey, we're in that, the Anglican piece, I think we're sort of adjacent to it. I still feel like that's a world that we're, there's some crossover there. And I often wonder if the reason that we don't love our neighbor, that that's almost so suspect, right? We want to convert them, right? We want to give them the gospel. We just want, eh, we don't want to love them in any material ways necessarily. I don't know why that's such a hang-up. Because I was raised that way. And I often wonder if the reason we don't love our neighbor more fully is that we truly don't understand, and I mean understand here, the grace of God. The grace of God. Because if you believe, if you really, really believe, 
I was in bondage to sin. I was an exile in Egypt. I was an enemy of God and I was bound for death. And yet God reached up and he rescued me. Wouldn't you want others to be rescued too? Wouldn't that be something you almost uh, couldn't contain? You'd feel compelled to act upon the good news. You want to share this good news. And so there are days where I think, you know, if we aren't loving our neighbor, maybe part of the problem is we don't love God as much as we think we do. Love is very hard work. It is. It requires sacrifice. You know, you work it out day by day in the gritty work of sanctification. You know, it is. A lot of times there's nothing sexy about it. It's just getting it done day to day, showing up, and God changes us over time. Sometimes it takes a long time. I wish it came naturally. I wish it came easily, but it doesn't tend to because dying to self, it just hurts. So love does hurt. There's part of that that is true. Though I'm not going to give uh, Aerosmith. Yeah, I don't, I'm not giving them credit on that. Nazareth, thank you. I knew I got that wrong, but it sounds like Stephen Tyler, doesn't it? No, it's biblical. Love does hurt. So I'll read you something. I was thumbing around. I preach on a passage. I'll go back and see, okay, what exegesis have I done on this before? And I'll go back and I'll look and see what work I've done and see what else I can do. And just, you know what I mean? Just, you know, it doesn't have to be a clean sheet of paper every time. You go back and see what work you did and you, you do it again and it's a help. So I, I went to a, an older sermon from a couple years ago, over two years ago. And it was back when we were at YMCA. When we still met inside of the YMCA, which feels like eons ago. I want to read you something from that that applies to this uh, love God and love of neighbor. So I'm going to read you like just one little paragraph, okay? Because I think it's really uh, relevant and poignant to where we are, okay? So here it is. This is a question that is ever on my heart as I envision our permanent church home. Something we're ardently praying over. Definitely were. Who will our neighbors be? Who will we be a neighbor to? Not correct English, but you get the point. How will our mission as a church be shaped by our new location and the people surrounding it? Will we be moved to action and compassion? Will we seek to renew the community around us? Who will our neighbors be and who will we be a neighbor to? Not not too soon to ask and pray deeply over those questions. As a community, let's be in prayer and fasting over this as we actively seek out our new location to which God is calling us in. There's something about, uh, I think there's a prayer after that. Crazy. That was two years ago, over two years ago. Right now, I mean, our numbers are small. And there's, <laughs> I don't think I'm the only one to saying there's a feeling of, we're feeling heavy, we're feeling weak. When things get difficult, and, oh, Lord, do we know this temptation? That temptation can be, things are difficult, let's circle the wagons, right? Let's circle the wagons and let's guard what we have. It's kind of a, uh, how would I put it? Like, hunker down and love the ones you're with, right? Can I just encourage us not to be satisfied with that? To move out in love, to trust the Lord in His leading, to risk something of mission. Absolutely, we need to love each other. We're neighbors to each other. <laughs> Biblically, we are neighbors. And we need to love each other. That matters a great deal. 
But I don't want us to be satisfied with that. I don't want us to do that to the exclusion of loving our neighbors where we live in our different places or loving our neighbors here in this neighborhood. So it's tempting, I think, to circle the wagons and just hunker. And what I would say is, let's not do that. Let's take some risks and let's act out in love as God loved us.